you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. It's printed for you on the next page of your bulletin, but if you have your own Bible, I certainly invite you to take a look. Uh, we're going to be reading 2 Kings 2 in its entirety. It's, it's relatively long, about 25 verses, and so uh, I will, uh, I'll ask you to remain standing, but if, if you need to sit, by all means, uh, take, take a seat if you need to. Again, our reading this morning is 2 Kings 2, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elisha said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you've asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven and Elisha saw it. And he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men. And for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was still staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water, threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on. Neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. 
And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel. And from there, he returned to Samaria. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. <clears throat> Let me pray. Father, we, we, uh, we look to you, especially in this, in this word, which in, in so many ways feels so culturally and, and, and chronologically distant from us and our, and our everyday needs. Uh, all, all of our anxieties and worries, all of the things that, that, that keep us up at night, and yet, Lord, we look to your word, even here in 2 Kings 2, knowing this word is profitable for us. Knowing that like any time we open your word, Lord, we need your spirit to come and apply it to our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do that work in our presence this morning. Christ's name we pray, amen. We just read 25 verses, and I'm guessing you are all stuck on the last two, aren't you? Uh, this is one of the most memorable little scenes in, in all of the Bible. You have a prophet who's apparently mocked by some neighborhood kids for being bald, gets mad at the kids, curses them, and all of a sudden two mama bears come out and attack these little boys. You can go online right now and you can buy t-shirts that say 2 Kings 22, have a silhouette of two bears, and, and the shirt says, respect your elders. <laughs> I'm going to argue that's right doctrine, wrong text. Now we're going to get to the story of Elisha and the bears in, in just a little bit. To keep you interested, I don't think that's at all what's going on in this scene. So I'm going to present what I think really is happening, and I don't believe it's just a, a couple of little boys who are being nasty to this respectable prophet. But I'm going to leave you hanging right now. I'm going to keep you here. We'll get to that later. There's a lot going on in this passage. We want to make sure we're, we're, we're looking at, at all of it. Of course, th this morning, the, the baton is passed. We've spent the last few weeks looking at Elijah and his ministry. That comes to a conclusion in the most dramatic of ways. He's only one of two men in the Old Testament who do not die the other being Enoch, kind of a mysterious figure in the book of Genesis. But here we have Elijah, and that's going to form a lot of kind of where, where Judaism and Christianity go, where later Malachi takes up this expectation because Elijah didn't die. We're expecting Elijah to come again. And then in the New Testament, we see with especially John the Baptist that we're all waiting for that man, that spirit of Elijah. I hope, and this is really one of the points of this sermon series, is that I, I hope that we have a little bit of a better grasp of the ministry of Elijah. He is God's prophet of the word to a very wayward and idolatrous people, to, to wicked King Ahab, one of the worst kings that either Israel or Judah will have. And so by and large, Elijah's ministry is a word of judgment and condemnation. Elijah is confrontational in his dealings with King Ahab, and so he sounds an awful lot like Moses before Pharaoh, and then looking forward, he sounds like John the Baptist before King Herod. Well, that's who Elijah is, ministry of judgment. Now we have Elisha. What's his deal? And this is where we'll be for the next month. Elisha is ministering to the same wayward and idolatrous people. There has been no revival in Israel. There has been no prominent, significant change of heart in Israel. And yet, by and large, his ministry is not the same as Elijah's. He does not come with a ministry of judgment. He comes with a ministry of salvation and life. Even with the story of the bears, I think that's true. See, if Elijah's message is, 
in this land of all of the Baal worship, there is one true and living God to be worshipped. And I think that's Elijah's message. Elisha's message is that true and living God is the God who saves. He is the God of steadfast love. 2 Kings 22 is where this transition takes place. It's memorable. It shaped the imagination of God's people for thousands of years. Elijah, not not dying, but taken up by God in this whirlwind with chariots of horses and, and, and fire, and you have water separating. We've seen that before. We'll talk about that. But here we have water separating again multiple times, and then, of course, mother bears. So this morning, I want to walk through 2 Kings, where I think you could, you could really break this down into three acts, if this is like a drama. We have three acts, and, and kind of that, that premise I gave on week one of this sermon series, when we, when we dive into these books, even about kings and prophets, we are anticipating that God has truths to communicate to us, in particular, always about who he is, and about his character. And so as we look through Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, we'll correspond to, to the, the the characteristics of God that we see prominently displayed in these acts. And so we'll look at God's faithfulness in Act 1, God's grace in Act 2, and then God's justice in Act 3. All right, so first of all, Act 1, God's faithfulness, and this is where the baton is passed. You know, if you've ever wondered where the phrase to pass the mantle comes from, it's here. It's a biblical idea. You know, we talk about a politician passing the mantle to the next newly elected official, or maybe the great ball player passes the mantle to the next generation's phenom. And that phrase comes here where Elijah passes the mantle, which is this kind of old word we don't use anymore for like a cloak or, or, a, or some kind of covering that a prophet wore that identified him as a prophet. That mantle of Elijah is passed to Elisha. Now, the first thing to note and, and we're going to come back to this throughout, so you'll, you'll have to bear with me a little bit, is that geography stands out prominently in this passage. Let me suggest it's one of the things that makes a passage like this difficult. Uh, my knowledge of, of Israel's geography is, is not too great. And so it makes it hard to kind of dive in here, and yet geography is everything in this passage. I want you to think of an upside-down triangle, okay? They go from Gilgal to Bethel down to Jericho, and that's where the Jordan River is, or it's near there. Okay, upside down triangle. Got that? Gilgal, Bethel, uh, down to Jericho. Who needs PowerPoint, right? I'm, I'm drawing air triangles. We're doing fine. All right? Elijah says that God has sent him to Bethel, and he wants Elijah to stay behind. Elisha refuses. I will not leave you. And then you have these prophets come, and they say, do you know that Elijah's leaving? And then Elisha says, some of you laughed, because it is really strange, isn't it? He's like, no, quiet. He's like, shut up. Don't talk about that. Elijah will soon be departing the story. And the tone of the prophets here, I don't think it's mocking. Uh, these, these prophets are always in the background of both Elijah and Elisha. I think these are God's actual band of prophets here. And it's not that they're mocking Elisha. It's not that they're being know-it-alls, like, you know, your, your master is leaving you today. I think the tone is likely worry. What are we going to do without Elijah? He has been the presence of God. He has been the spokesman of God. What are we going to do without this man who has represented the presence of God in Israel? And Elisha, frankly, doesn't want to think about that. He doesn't want to talk about that. From Bethel, Elijah says, God is taking me to Jericho. Elijah, stay here. And again, Elisha says, no chance. I'm staying with you. My guess, it's just a guess, my guess is that throughout Elijah's ministry, he's always found himself alone. It's been Elijah versus everyone else. He's probably bought into that to some extent. And yet here, Elisha refuses to leave because he is a faithful disciple. 
there are a number of ways I could probably highlight this, this background, but there are so many echoes of Jesus' ministry all throughout the, the scene of Elijah's departure. So in John 6, we read that a bunch of followers of Jesus fall away, and Jesus famously goes to his 12 disciples, and, and he says, do you want to go away with them? And Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. I think that's here. Elisha stay behind, and Elisha goes, how can I possibly leave you, Elijah? You have the words of life. And so the two prophets come down to Jericho. They venture out to the Jordan River, where Elijah separates the waters. The two prophets cross the Jordan, and then in verse 9, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Okay, so Elisha is asking for an inheritance. He wants to keep doing the work in the name of Elijah. And he realizes, I think that's what the double portion means. He realizes that if he's going to be anything as great as Elijah, he needs double the spirit to do so. And as the two prophets are talking, right, Elijah says, well, I can't give you that. God has to do that. And then as they're talking, you have this dramatic whirlwind and these horses and chariots of fire, and they separate them, and Elijah is taken up into heaven. Now, how does Elijah respond? This is the point. How does Elijah respond? We can read this too fast. I think it's broken up strange in in the Bible, the way they break up the sentences, or at least in in the ESV that I'm looking at. How does Elijah respond? It's not with amazement. Incredible. Uh, horses and chariots of fire. It's distress. See that? It's distress. Why in the world does Elisha respond in verse 12, my father, my father. He's not saying this is an amazing spiritual experience. He is in crisis right now. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw them no more, and then he takes his own clothes and he tears them. I think it's easy to miss because it's happening so fast in the prose, right, in the, in the text we have. But this crisis is clearly present because Elijah's dramatic exit for the prophets and for Elisha means where is our father? Where is the presence of God? There's no doubt that Elijah's leaving introduces something of a crisis. It has only meant bad things when Elijah leaves Israel and now he's leaving for good. Think about the symbolism of chariots and horses that represents God's protection, God's might, and all of a sudden that comes down to Israel, and then it departs. Elijah represented something of the same kind of symbolic back. He represented God's presence and protection. So the question now is, are the people exposed? The cry of Elisha is a cry of lament. My father, my father, he tears his cloak. Why does he tear his cloak? It's an act of grief. But Elisha's lament is followed by a cry, which is a question of faith. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Elisha models here something of what it means to be a faithful follower of the Lord, who in a world of uncertainty, he casts himself on the faithfulness of God when he asks this question, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Even when I can't see it, he's here at work somewhere. Elijah is gone, but God is not. So I want to latch on to that question that Elisha models for us, right? It it doesn't take away the lament. It doesn't take away the cloak tearing. It doesn't take away crying out for his father. And yet he he meets that cry of, of kind of emptiness with this expectation, this cry of faith that says, God, where are you in all of this? And I think that's so relevant for us, right? Your circumstances and my circumstances, they can feel upended and they can feel aimless and they can feel confusing. And what an appropriate question when we can't see what God is doing to just cry out, where is the Lord in this? 
Because he's somewhere in this. Elisha at this point doesn't have all the answers. It's still a question, right? Where is the Lord? But he is somewhere in this. He's somewhere in my mess. He's somewhere in my heartache. He's somewhere in my despair. I think we pray an even better question. Not where is the Lord, the God of Elijah, right? Our prayer is where is the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Oh, it's such a better question. Where is the Lord, the God that Paul writes in Romans 8, the God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so when we are in confusion and we are wondering what in the heck is going on, we're just with Elisha saying, where is the Lord? Because he's somewhere in this. He's somewhere in this. He's in it. He's got a good work to do. That's act one. Despite the circumstances changing, despite life in flux, God is faithful to his people and continues to be at work. Again, this is easy to to read too fast because we kind of have an idea. Even if you don't know the story, you probably have an idea that Elisha's going to take over from Elijah, right? But step into the crisis because I'm I'm sure there's some people in this room right now. It's been a hard week for me and my family in in many ways. And so there's there's been a lot of times where I've, I've prayed this prayer of Elisha. God, where are you in this? Because I think you're in this. I know you're in this, but I I can't see where you are. So Elisha teaches us what it means to cry out with these questions. God, where are you? God is faithful. God has a good work to do in Israel. We see that in the second act. The grace of God. After Elisha prays, he takes Elijah's cloak. He strikes the water and it parts just like it parted. For Elijah. I gave you this picture a few weeks ago of, you know, what do we do with Elijah and Elisha? And I've said they're hinges. They they almost are like these little interpretive lenses for all of the Bible. So they swing backwards to Moses and Joshua. And they swing forward looking to John the Baptist and Jesus. Uh, It's the Jordan River where John does his baptizing. It's it's where Jesus is baptized and Jesus takes over where John's ministry kind of leaves off. Elijah and Elisha, it's kind of the same thing. Elisha takes over at the Jordan picking up where Elijah left off. But again, Here you want to look back to Moses. Let's go back to the geography. Elijah and Elisha travel from Gilgal across. They cross over to Bethel. They go down to Jericho near the Jordan River. Once at the Jordan River, Elijah takes his cloak. He rolls it up like into a little staff, right? A little makeshift staff. And then he strikes the water. The water is parted. And they cross through on dry ground. Okay? So what I want you to think now is they're going across the Jordan. They're technically still in Israel, but they're heading away from Israel. Like the way that the the wilderness generation came in to to Israel, they're now headed east, outside of the land, or at least in the direction outside the land. And the purpose of this is is think of like a VHS tape that you put in, and then when the screen's on, you press rewind, and everything's going backwards. Because Elijah and Elisha here, they're they're reenacting Israel's journey into the land, but they're taking it in reverse, heading outside the land, okay? Elijah is the new Moses, Elisha is the new Joshua, who will then enter back into the land. Remember, Moses never enters the land. He dies on the other side of the Jordan. He's buried by God. And so Elijah goes outside of Israel, so to speak, and he's taken up by God. That leaves Elisha to re-enter the land on a new conquest. Can, can you kind of track with that? If you know the story a little bit of Moses and Joshua, we're going we're to redo that story in the lives of the two prophets. That should ring a bell if you know your Bibles a little bit because Jericho's on the scene now, isn't it? 
And Jericho is probably the most famous story in the book of Joshua. If you have a children's Bible and it has a story from the book of Joshua, it's probably Jericho. This walled, fortified city, right when the Israelites come into the promised land, it's got these big walls. They march around the walls seven days. They blow trumpets, and the walls come down. So in verse 19, we have these residents of Jericho, and they come to Elisha, and they say, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. And so this is where Elisha begins his work of taking back the land for the Lord. Now, the last time we left off in Jericho, things were not good. In 1 Kings 16, we're getting acquainted with the wickedness of King Ahab, right? He has this program of turning the land back into Baal country, back into this pagan kind of Canaanite territory. And at the peak of Ahab's wickedness, we have this little line that says Jericho's walls were rebuilt. It's like Joshua's work was never done. And then the next time we come back to Jericho, it's here in 2 Kings 2. The water is bad. The place is cursed. It brings death. We don't know if it's actually killing children. We don't know if it's just killing the crops. But what it does mean is this place is cursed because if there is no water somewhere, there is no place. There are no inhabitants. So they cry out to Elisha. Here's the situation. And Elisha Elisha calls for a new bowl with some salt. He throws the salt in the spring of water. And then in verse 21, He says, as a prophet speaking the very words of God, thus says the Lord, that means that God is saying this, I have healed this water from now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. Elisha is bringing life to a place of death. This seems like a really insignificant scene, doesn't it? Out of all the things we've read in in, in 1 Kings, right? Elijah's with the the prophets of Baal. He's raising the dead. And here you have this like polluted stream and then he throws some salt in it. Why am I even spending time talking about this? It seems so insignificant, but I don't think it is at all. See, Elijah did amazing works, life-giving works, resurrection works. But do you remember where Elijah did those works? It wasn't in Israel. He did it in Phoenician territory. He did it deep in the land of Baal. Israel has had no ministry of life until Elisha comes in. And at the first opportunity where Elisha can bring life, he does. Notice that the men don't even ask for the Lord to intervene, do they? They just say, man, this place is great as you can see, but the water's bad. And yet Elisha does this work. They're just complaining, and yet God intervenes. And so what I want you to think about, which is this is just the beginning of it, I want you to think of like a time-lapse video. Think of like a nature video where you have the time lapse where the morning sun starts and then it just keeps going over time, right? All over the land and it's it's bathed in light. That's the ministry of Elisha beginning here at this toxic spring. It's a picture of the graciousness of God's saving work. Elisha's ministry begins with a walk. It's not a sprint, right? It's a walk, but the message is clear. God has a new work to do in Israel. It's a small scene, but it drops the seed of the God who delivers us from the domain of darkness and brings us into the kingdom of his son. Not for anything we have, right? Not for anything that we do, but because God's grace takes over. God doesn't find those who are savable. I don't think God is impressed with the inhabitants of Jericho. He just interrupts the lost with his grace. And it's amazing how much of the world looks at Christians and thinks like those are the people that think of themselves as as perfect and who think of themselves as as righteous. No, guys, we are just the people of Jericho whose waters are polluted, who have no idea what we're even supposed to ask, and yet God steps in in pure grace. Pure grace that will then take over in the ministry of Elisha. 
That, of course, is not the only story at the beginning of Elisha's ministry. We also have Act 3, which is an act of judgment. This is the justice of God. All right, so God's faithfulness in that baton being passed, God's grace in, in Jericho, which has only represented bad news, and yet God brings a healing, life-giving work. And then we have the story of the two she-bears. And, and again, even after this story is over, I, I'm going to insist that Elisha still represents a ministry of life and not judgment. Elisha continues this journey of retracing Joshua's steps. He goes from Jericho, then he comes up to Bethel. Now, Bethel's important. This is where that geography stuff gets really hard. Bethel is important. Remember, you have King Solomon. He's the greatest king, or the last really great king of Israel after his father David. Then he dies, and the kingdom is split. You have Rehoboam, his son, in Jerusalem, down in Judah. In the northern kingdom in Israel, you have, you have Jeroboam, who, if you remember, he's just a random guy that God says, I'm going to start a new kingdom in you. And how does Jeroboam pay God back? He creates this like rival idolatrous nation. Right? So he sets up a, a golden calf shrine, one in the north of the country, one in the south. We're in the southern one right here. He sets up a rival priesthood system. He sets up a new calendar with different religious holidays that, that, that the, the Israelites didn't observe. He sets up this pseudo-religious system that includes Baal worship. That's the backdrop here. That's Bethel. That's what Bethel means for us. And so Elisha goes to Bethel, and while he's there, we read that some small boys come out of the city, and they jeer at him, saying, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And Elisha turns around. He curses them in the name of the Lord, and two mother bears tear through 42 of these boys. What the heck is going on here? I was talking to, uh, to one of you a few months ago, and you were saying you, know, you have this coworker who just, you just can't really buy into Christianity because of this kind of scene. Like, how could you, how could you worship a God who, who, who sends bears and sicks them on little kids? Uh, another one of you, just a couple of weeks ago, were talking about the, the, the podcaster Joe Rogan, and apparently he's ridiculed Christianity because of a scene like this. Uh, one of the things that's making the news is, is all of this artificial intelligence. You've all seen all this artificial intelligence. You have this chat GBT. So you can go online and you can type in, like, you know, write me a research paper on the American Revolution, and it pumps out a research paper. So I decided I'm going to try it this week. Tell me about Elisha and the bears. And I got good news. I have job security. It didn't, it didn't do a good job at all. <laughs> it did a terrible job. So what is going on? Again, I don't think these are little boys at all. These two words in Hebrew that make up small boys or little children, they do all of the heavy lifting. So the word for boys is a word that basically can mean a couple of things. The most primary meaning is male human being. It can be a male human being like Jack, a little baby. It can be a male human being like me. Any kind of male human being. Now, in the Old Testament, this word is also used to identify people in office. And so it's used for armor bearers, servants, king's officials. And then I think importantly, it also stands in for Samuel's wicked sons in the book of 1 Samuel. Remember, he's the priest, and he, and he, or the prophet, and then he has sons that are going to be prophets, but they're wicked. And that's what they call them here, too. Then you have the other word, okay, if we can set aside that word, small, little, or young. And so the next question is, okay, well, how young are they? And here's where things get really interesting because our author of Kings has used this exact same phrase twice already and I think those mean a lot for our interpreting this passage. And so in 2 Kings 3, King Solomon comes to the throne and he asks God for wisdom and he describes himself as a little child. 
How old is Solomon when he prays this prayer? Early 20s. But he calls himself a little boy, a little child. A few chapters later in 2 Kings 11, Solomon has an enemy named Hadad the Edomite. And after a battle, Hadad loses and he flees because our author tells us he was a little child. Now, unless you think Hadad was like a seven-year-old little warrior king, which I think is pretty cool to think about, that's probably not the case. But he too is called a little child. And so my point here is these aren't little kids. These were young men, likely not even here boys, but in reference to their office, they were probably 42 priestly servants that served at the shrine of Bethel. I also think there's even more going on here. It's possible, I would maybe say probable, that Elisha isn't bald. In verse 5, the prophets say to Elisha, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you, which in Hebrew is literally over your head. Your head covering is going to leave you. And so I think there's a good chance they aren't mocking Elisha because he's follically challenged, but because he's bald or lost without Elijah. So what they're saying is, go up, you bald head. Your boss is gone. Your head covering is gone. Your master is gone. Where is your God now? They mocked and ridiculed Elisha because they opposed everything that he stood for and everything the Lord stood for. And so God goes to war. Elisha, our new Joshua, crosses into the promised land that has been marred and disfigured by sin and idolatry. You cannot have a ministry of life if sin and death are reigning. So Elisha represents the Lord taking back his land. God goes to war against sin and wickedness, yes, for his glory, but also out of steadfast love for his people. Now, I'm guessing that, that some of us, even if we take this interpretation, and I, I, think, it's, I, think, this is, I think this is right, what I'm saying, um, Bible translation is notoriously conservative, meaning that it's hard to make these big calls when you have a tradition that's gone on for so long. But I really do think this is the right reading of this. But I'm still guessing there are some of you here that are still uncomfortable, still seems too violent. Still seems too cruel that Elisha would be mocked and all of a sudden God would just send these bears to rip them apart. And so what I want to do is start thinking through what is the hope of the world that's turned in on itself. The hope of a world that's broken and lost. A world that is sin stained with injustice and with hatred and with enmity and with suffering. Right? There may be no hope at all, which I would suggest, you know, if, if 42 little boys are killed by bears and there's no hope and there's no meaning in life, like, big whatever. There's no meaning to anything. That's possible. There's no hope. But then don't get too upset about this story at all. Or the hope is that God will rescue this world from itself. God will rescue this world from its wickedness and sin and suffering. Friends, our hope is that the kingdom of God is coming in perfect justice. The problem in this world isn't economic. It's not socio-political. It's not just that we're in need of the next technological innovation. The problem of this world is deeply spiritual. And here's the hard word for all of us. It cuts through every single one of our hearts. This is not a spiritual issue out there. It is a spiritual issue everywhere. So in this scene, we see God at war against sin and death. Is it still offensive? I think that depends on the answer to the next question. How deadly, how serious do you think sin is? How worthy of judgment is sin? That God would send beasts to destroy these these false teachers who despise God's word. Remember, that's who Elisha is. Elisha is the word of God. 
And so that God would send false beasts, or not real beasts, to, to false teachers leading the people away from their creator. That's still offensive to a world that doesn't think sin is serious. But yeah, this scene tells us God thinks sin is serious. And here's like the amazing thing. Here's, here's the remarkable thing for us to end on, is that God takes so, sin so seriously that one day he won't just bring a bear to bring judgment, he will send a lamb to bear it. That's how serious God takes sin. I mean, think about the better prophet, the better Elisha, Jesus. He too will be mocked and scorned. He too will be mocked about his head as a crown of thorns is thrust upon him. False priests will say, not where is your hair, right? But they'll say, if you're the son of God, do something. But the curses don't fall on his accusers, his mockers. Curses fall on Jesus' own head. Why? Ah, Because God is also so loving and gracious that he himself will satisfy the justice demanded. And so all of this is so that we, those who cannot fix ourselves, whose hearts are naturally turned away from God, we who know intimately what it is to, to, to serve false idols, right? If we're anyone in this story, you know who we are, right? We're not righteous Elijah who's indignant. Now we're the mockers, aren't we? We're those who play with the idols. We're those who are at the Bethel shrine just trying to get away with as much as we possibly can. But God comes and he provides another so that we can can look to salvation in the name of the Lord. And wonder of wonders, we will not receive the curses we deserve. And so I would suggest this is still a strange story. But it's a strange little scene that's part of a grand story that culminates at the cross. It's just another story, friends, of God intruding into his world, of light dawning over the darkness, of God's victory over the powers of this world that seem to have all of the control and all of the power. God's justice is the only hope for a world that's broken. It's perfect justice, and what a glorious reality to know that that in Christ this justice has been satisfied, but also what a sobering truth to know that the Lamb's also a lion. And he will come again bringing judgment. What other plea or exhortation is there for us this morning than to cling to Jesus, our lamb? To find our life in him, our mercy in him, our hope in him. So friends, the gospel of Elisha, what we'll look at for the next few weeks, the gospel of Elisha is an echo of the better gospel of Jesus. Another better gospel where sin is destroyed, this time death is vanquished. An abundant life is found. Let's pray. Lord, we are, we are really casting ourselves on your promises this morning. When we dig deep into your word in a place like 2 Kings 2 with, with all of the miracles, all of the, the, the wonder-working events that that stand out, all of the things that also feel very distant from our Monday through Friday struggles, our family strife, the depths of the problems of this world. Yet, Lord, we cast ourselves on your promises knowing that you use this word to shape us, to bring us to know ourselves better, to bring us to know you better. Lord, we long with anticipation for the hope of this world. Not on anything we can 
conjure up in our own hands, not to any of the, the worldly powers that, that we so often look to with false hope, but Lord, we, we long with anticipation for your kingdom to come. Lord, my prayer here is that everyone in this room would know you as the lamb. They would know you as the one who satisfied justice on behalf of your people. Lord, that we would all be so acquainted with the seriousness of sin that drives us to the ever-deepening realization of your mercy and grace. Lord, would you do that work in our presence by your spirit here and now? Lord, use this word for the building up of your people. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.